0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Writers' Festival Radio. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe people. My name is Aidan Wilson, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. I'm a student at Lusker Collegiate Institute, and I'm the co-founder of the Republic of Childhood. Welcome to our fourth season of conversations about the future of learning. Please take a moment to rate and review Writers' Festival Radio, and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy this podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. We can't do it without you. Special thanks to the Ottawa Community Foundation and the TELUS Friendly Future Foundation for supporting our virtual republic programming. Today's guest, Andy Hargraves, speaks to us in a clear and authentic voice. We all deserve a first class education, regardless of our socioeconomic pedigree. At the age of seven from a working class upbringing in the Northwest England in the 1950s, Andy's educational trajectory was set when he was placed in the A-stream and then grammar school. University and a career are usually reserved for those who come from wealth and privilege. As we enter the third decade of the 21st century, the classified is even stronger than it was when he was in his youth. Moving, a memoir of education and social mobility, reads like a novel about families who seek better lives for their children. As Andy writes, people's past should not be held hostage to their futures. Here's Andy Hargraves in conversation with Neil Wilson.
1: Across the span of almost seven decades, I've made what feels like a huge change. I've moved from a two-up, two-down rented terraced house with no indoor toilet on a cobbled street in an old Victorian mill town to being a reasonably well-known, some would even say quite famous professor, writer, speaker, and government advisor in my field of education. These days, almost every month. I meet with a minister, president, ambassador, or other dignitary on his or her request. I've lived and worked in three countries and with my family became a citizen of two. That's a lot of movement. Welcome Andy Hargreaves. And thank you for sharing this memoir of education and social mobility called Moving. You know, Andy, this half of the book, the, the autobiographical material to me has a feel of an Alan Sillitoe novel, perhaps Saturday oh. night, uh, Sunday morning, or The Loneliness mm-hmm. of a Long Distance Runner. And the, you know, the the British New Wave, the Carl Rice genre it's just so gritty and it's you can you're, you're there it's it's an amazing amazing accomplishment thank you thank you that's very
2: kind it's uh, I come slightly after silito I'm sure. uh, fa- fairly senior but I'm not that senior <laughs> <laughs> um
1: I would like to um, ask you to give us a sense of the early years of your education in working class Northwestern England and what it was like for you and your family growing up poor.
2: Yeah, I think, um, I don't think we necessarily saw ourselves as particularly poor at the time because we were surrounded by many people just like us, Uh, people who whose parents uh, got married in wartime, Um, came of age during the depression, Uh, raised the children during uh, rationing, lived working class lives, wanted something better, found their way into social housing, Um, what in England we call council housing, one of the Greatest movements for opportunity and working-class people after after the war um, uh, worked hard, didn't have didn't have much money. Uh, valued uh, one summer holiday a year, an occasional night out at the pub, and and uh, families who wanted uh, bigger and better opportunities for their children, what they'd fought for really during. During World War Two and what women had sacrificed themselves for uh, at home while their husbands were away, uh, the the school I went to, and in in the midst of all this was um, a British uh, primary school in in the nineteen fifties to nineteen sixty. Uh, it was the school for for mainly working class and uh, lower. Mid, lower middle class children all white then the the pakistani immigrants uh, came to work in the mills came a little later when i was in uh, when i was in selective secondary school the the ethos of of the time in in that was growing quite fast and spread much more than it did in canada or the us was one of uh, child-centered learning the the whole child uh working with what the child brought with them rather than against what they didn't Uh, and combining that with with many of the traditional things that parents say they still like um, spelling uh, vocabulary uh, multiplication tables and so on not not all my teachers um, practiced this fully consistently or well but but there was one particular teacher at, at the end of uh primary school for me when in 1960, 61, when I was uh, 10 years old, who uh, epitomized this uh, really better than even officially it was being advanced. And her name was Mary Hindle. Uh, She was years ahead of her time. She taught in the same school all her life. She eventually became uh, deputy head, a uh, vice principal. She uh, lived with the teacher next door. Miss Hindle and Miss Suckliff lived <laughs> lived in a uh, lived in a little house across the other side of uh, town. I wonder what we'd say about that now, compared to compared to what we we said about it then. And um, uh, she she wanted to be the head teacher or the principal, but of course, uh, gender politics of the time uh, militated. Uh, against that, and and she for me, uh, she was an extraordinary teacher, um, and for many others too, because I've I've been in communication with uh, other children who were there the the same time as me, so it's not an isolated memory. And um, she would uh, she'd have us work a lot on all the things that uh, educators reformers now call things like global competencies, 21st century skills. Uh, She'd have us working in groups uh, on interdisciplinary projects, uh, uh, working on newspapers together. I, I wrote the travel section, even though I'd never traveled anywhere. I just traveled in my head, basically. And, um, and there was a lot of focus also on on the arts, on dance, on uh, on on physical. Uh, music with movement and in, in fact when i wrote to her years later as an adult uh, thanking her for for what she'd given me and inspiring me to move into the education uh, profession of all the things she remembered me for, it, it it was my probably slightly overdone a uh, flamenco dancing to the <laughs> to the rhythms of um of a, a a new piece of classical music called malaguena i was um it's not always easy uh, to teach uh i think i, I was um <laughs> quick-witted and uh, uh and had a quick tongue i think in in class i uh, you know i would i would banter make um make 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 comic remarks um I, I found it found it hard to concentrate sometimes. Um, lost most everything I had. I still do. My mother used to call me the absent-minded professor, uh, so be careful what you call your children because it, it, it could come true. It, this,
1: uh, is this what your wife refers to as your uh, your Blackpool gene?
2: Uh my the, 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 the yeah let, let let's talk about the blackpool gene because because i think uh what i'm trying to say i guess about mary Hindle is that uh is 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 that she she understood what i was like she understood the whole of me but didn't but but didn't let me be too much of me and that That is what we expect our teachers at their best to to do. Uh, My Blackpool gene is a a Blackpool is I I think now um, has two of the three most uh, deprived neighborhoods in the whole of the UK. Um, It is, uh, how can I describe it? It's like the Las Vegas of England, but not so classy. (laughs) uh it is uh it is a place of funfairs uh casinos old uh peers comedians kiss me quick hats uh been ruined of course by by foreign holidays and opening up to the continent it's on the end of a road to nowhere now in in a way and uh part of our family like half of our family line comes from comes from blackpool and uh we used to visit relatives there uh, an uncle who installed fireplaces was uh, illiterate and enumerate, but his his wife did did the books uh, hearts of gold would have the tv blaring on in the background all the time loud loud blingy uh, i still like a bit of bling actually though though my wife is not so partial to it as as i am and um just working-class culture basically mm-hmm. and uh and i think in in canada and elsewhere that is something we need to reconnect with where we're, we're uh, rightly reconnecting with all kinds of other culture indigenous culture immigrant cultures uh lgbt culture uh, but we've not really reconnected with the uh, with working-class culture and we're at a time in history now when i think it's very important to do that
1: uh, just before um, going up to the juniors, I guess at about age seven, you, you recall being called up uh, to the front desk um, where uh, Mrs. Whitaker gave you yeah. uh, and all the students a vocabulary test. If, if uh, you wouldn't mind sharing what that test meant to you and how it reflects so strongly yeah. in their, your whole notion of social mobility.
2: It's it's very strange what we remember from our uh, early childhood. Ask ask most kids what they remember of early childhood; they'll probably remember sand and uh, and, and water and playing outside. Uh, but I, I do remember one particular moment at uh, I just turned age seven when when the headmistress, the school principal of the the infant school, as we call them then, uh, called me up to a desk and it was a vocabulary test. And uh, I I could sense it was important, but of course, at seven years old, I had no idea particularly why. And I just went through this long, long list of vocabulary words. It it went, they got more and more difficult. And and then I could remember the last word I could pronounce, which was pneumonia, and and provide the meaning for. And the first word I couldn't pronounce, uh, which of course was the only word, and that was, I'm not even sure I can pronounce it correctly to this day, a word called sthysis. Don't even ask me to spell it. uh, But but they're both pulmonary wasting diseases. And to this day, it, it strikes me as astounding as, as to why somebody should put those two words together on a vocabulary test. What I didn't know was that that test and all the other judgments that, that our teachers made about us uh, decided which, which stream or track we would go into at age seven so when we went up into the juniors at age seven uh, half of us went into the a stream half of us went into the b stream and and the test was a big decider uh, about that Uh, years later before i started writing this memoir i I had reason to come across uh, class lists of just who those kids were who went to the a stream and into the b stream I remembered almost no one from the B-string because we didn't connect with them. We didn't study with them. They weren't our friends already. We were being separated into two different worlds. And then when we came to 11, we had another test then called the 11 plus that would decide between 20% or so of kids in the town who would go on to a selective academic grammar school and the other 80% who would go Who would go on to what I guess you would call a vocational school now, and um, about well about half of the kids from the A stream went on to the grammar school, and I could see who those kids were because on the list I had of kids from age seven, written against their names were the schools they eventually went to at age eleven, and many of the kids in the A stream went on to the selective school and none of the kids in the B stream went on. And in fact, the research at the time and subsequently shows the same kind of pattern. So not only were our futures in a way set out at age 11, I I passed the test at 11, my two brothers didn't. I went eventually across the country to university. They went to factories down the bottom of the hill, but, but it was actually decided at seven, uh, long long before that. And of course, we can say, well, this doesn't have any relevance now, but, but think of all the reading groups there are in, in elementary school, that they have different names, animals, flowers, whatever they might be. Uh, and already there, we're starting to separate children out and deciding their futures for them. Well, well, we had this test at age eleven, and everybody knew it was important. It it wasn't really an accountability test, like like Canadian tests are. It was a selection test. It was really to to decide where you would go next, probably your whole future. And uh, everybody knew this, and and my mum and dad would would repeat the words that that everybody, all other parents said, which which is you know, don't worry, lad. It won't be the end of the world if if you don't pass. But of course, my two brothers had already not passed. They'd gone on to secondary, modern and uh, technical schools, Um, which which was for one of my, for both my brothers had lifelong impact. For one of them in particular, my eldest brother, I remember uh, talking to him in his fifties were fixing something together. And I said, Pete, you're so lucky you have a talent for this. I've have, I have no talent for this kind of thing whatsoever. I'm, I'm the kind of guy who fixes uh, instant pack furniture and always has three screws left over. And, uh, and he said, uh, and, uh, and it was pretty sharp in response, and he said, I have no talent for this whatsoever. He said, my talent is for history, for music, for opera, for art. But I wasn't allowed to study any of these things at the school that I was sent to at, at age eleven. The only skills I was allowed to develop were those that equipped me to work in a, in a factory. So, so when we talk about social mobility, uh, let, let's talk first about people like my brothers who were really rejected very early on and had to work their way up on the job for decades afterwards to compensate for what their schooling took away from them and then there are people like me who are affected in another way the people who do succeed who do pass who do move up but but often it it comes at a very great price and the the first one of that is just the 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 weight that hangs upon everybody that the kids and the parents when when these tests and exams were were taken uh i wasn't really a, a that aware of it at the time, I deny that that I was actively worried. But as you said, Neil, uh, I, I didn't go out. I, I I stopped playing. I became sick. I had, I was back and forth to the doctors. I'm still a hypochondriac to this day, by the way, although some of it's quite functional. Um, <laughs> <laughs> in terms of self, terms of self, I once diagnosed myself correctly as having African tick bite fever, which wow. I had a one in two, which I had a one in two million chance of catching, uh, even after I'd been bitten, and um, so it it is quite functional. But but uh, clearly, this was then, as tests often do now, uh, causing considerable anxiety. Um, so I'll be the first to say some of my strong feelings about testing. There's a the little bit of projection there. But the research is also very clear uh, that, that in the US, in England, and even in places like Ontario, Alberta, and I've done a lot of research in Ontario where we have uh, tests for young children that, that have a lot of weight placed upon them. Uh, the, the anxiety it causes is, uh, is considerable. We've seen this in a review we did for Premier Kathleen Wynn. We've seen this in our own research. So this is not something that just lays in the curious distant past across another side of the Atlantic, but it is something that stays with us.
1: Yeah, and, and you know over the years, and you've been involved in some of this leading edge research, it they, they used to be that well it was genetic working class uh, families don't do as well in school as their middle class because you know they they don't have the genes that the richer people do mm-hmm. and of course then you know other arguments have been put forward uh, family upbringing uh, parental guidance but it's much it's much deeper than that and it's much subtler than that and it seems that we still haven't come to grips with that today as we're going into the third decade of the 21st century.
2: The, the, the argument that working class underachievement is genetic is as nonsensical as the argument that that the achievement of Black and minority students and Indigenous students is uh, is genetic. I think uh, uh, to, today in Canada, with we can see with appalling clarity uh, the the struggles that students in Indigenous communities uh, FNMI uh, have have with their learning because of the historical indignities that that have been. Inflicted on them for decades, centuries, actually, and and the, the the same, but in a less obvious way, is is also true of um, of working class uh, underachievements. Some people say it's lack of books in the home. We didn't have many, but we used the public library a lot. Uh, some people say it's lack of encouragement, but but I certainly had that from from my parents, as as many kids do. Uh, but uh, but some of it is is the failure to connect uh, the culture of the school and and the knowledge of the young person with with the culture of the home, the community, the neighbourhood, uh, the social class or ethnic group that uh, that a young person belongs to. And uh, when I went to high school, uh, grammar school, after. Uh, a pretty good first year when i was uh you know topping i was in the top stream i was topping two or three subjects including maths i was i was the top boy in the town of of 40,000 uh people then then two things happened at, at the same time one is uh one is my dad died when i was uh, 12 years old and that was of course you know a loss as it is for any child uh, but but, but surrounding that was, was the fact that uh, my mother, as a working class mum who had three jobs, essential worker cleaning, looking after people's children, working in, in local stores, was raising three boys and uh, soldiered on for a while, but then it became too much for her. And then she collapsed with a nervous breakdown. She couldn't get out of bed. She had an agoraphobia. She didn't eat. Uh, set for a for a powder formula. So suddenly, as one of my brothers was getting married and the other one was emigrating to Canada to try and be a mountie, uh, they they um, I suddenly found I, I was in charge of my family instead of my family really being in charge of me. Hmm. And this is true for many kids from poor families today too. Teachers who teach them know all too well. They have brothers and sisters to look after. They can't join the clubs, the teams. They can't be the valedictorian. They can't really join easily in in the official life of the school. And so I began to miss a lot of classes and the subjects I was topping. Suddenly I was close to the bottom of the class. I never got to school before 11 in the morning because I was uh, doing jobs in, 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 in the house, trying to get things ship uh, shape. And uh, nobody talked about this because uh, c- we were boys <laughs> and it, it was Britain and it was it was the 1960s. So there's a lot of stiff upper lip uh, about things. And um, what I didn't need was extra maths teaching to try and get my mm-hmm. maths to be better. I, I needed a school, teachers, and a curriculum. The, the engage with my life that could not make me feel ashamed of having to look after my family, which in a way I did. I didn't talk about it to other people, but could make me feel proud of my leadership in my family and community. I, I needed a school that enabled me to um, engage with my Friends at home in the neighborhood who were no longer going to high school after they were 15. They were out in factories working now. Um, and uh, could connect the culture of my home to the culture of the school. And I needed a school that, in subjects like history, uh, didn't, didn't subject me to the accomplishments of great men, prime ministers, presidents, popes, and so on. Uh, but but could enable me to do what eventually I had to do for myself, was, was to engage with the social and economic history of my people, my region, the history of the many, not just, mm. not just the history of, of the few. And we talk about that now uh, rightly in relation to uh, immigrant cultures, immigrant lives, indigenous cultures, in, indigenous lives. Uh, but, but working, uh, we have research in Canada Uh, Wolfgang Lehman from the University of Western Ontario that shows working class kids still experience this. They're more likely to feel estranged when they go to university. They're more likely to drop out uh, than other kids. But we don't have a language or a way to talk about it. Sometimes I think we're a bit sensitive about uh, talking about the white working class because, of course, of the correct association of of whiteness with historic privilege. But if we could now understand after coronavirus, that working class also means migrant farm laborers, it means immigrant care home workers. Class is something that should bind all ethnicities um, and diversities together, not something that is set against them or made invisible.
1: Well, uh, just to go back maybe a beat or two, um, I wanted a very moving uh, portion of your early life uh, revolves around uh, the time when your mom was dying in Accrington, Victoria Hospital. You, I guess, realized that you didn't have to write about Anyway, you, you realized that you had a, a voice and that you had something to write about in relation to the, the sacrifice that your mother delivered every day. And I'm wondering if you could give us a little bit of the, the context and maybe even read that letter and uh, the effect it had on, on your mom.
2: Yeah, um, thanks, Neil, My my mom, uh, my mum was a very ordinary woman and a very extraordinary woman. Well, well, I'll read what comes from from the book after the editor had written back. Just a couple of days before mum died, when all the fluid had practically gone from her body, I leaned right over her with family members gathered around. I had no idea whether she could still hear. Mum, I said, I've something to tell you. I've written a piece about you for the Lancashire Telegraph. They say they're going to publish it as a double page spread, complete with pictures. It's all about you and your life, mum. A double page spread. Here's how it starts. I turned to the text. Here's the headline, the one the editors had assigned to it. How a loving Accrington mum scrimped and worked for her family. And then I began, Doris Hargreaves was born in a commode at the back of a sweet shop in Accrington, two years after the end of the Great War. Barely two sentences in, something happened that we thought was no longer physically possible. From the corner of my mum's eye, out of a tiny frame that had received no fluid in over a week. A single tear fell slowly down her cheek. Then I stopped. She understood. She knew. And so did I. This life, these lives, lives like ours, are absolutely worth writing about, as many people appreciated when they wrote back to me about the piece in the weeks that followed.
1: How did you uh, become a teacher and then... How did you want to teach teachers?
2: Hmm. Well, uh, ever since I was in Mary Hindle's class, um, as I wrote to her, uh, I'd always really been inspired about, about teachers and teaching. And then uh, in high school, uh, I had a particularly inspiring geography teacher uh, who also features in the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, d- developed a passion for geography from nowhere, really. And um, because what terrific teachers do is not just connect your learning to your own interests, but they introduce you to new interests as well. You know, many people listening to this podcast might want to reflect on a couple of interests that they have and then think about where they, where they got those from, who, who first ignited the flame. And uh, to be absolutely frank when you're an outwardly mobile working class child there are there are so many occupations you know absolutely nothing about I knew nothing about law about business about uh, uh, about uh, medicine uh, the contacts with people in those professions architecture engineering were uh, fragmentary or Non-existent, but I, I did know. I did know two professions. One was teaching because you see them every day, mm-hmm. uh, and and the other was social work because I used to go down with my mum to collect her benefits. So, so by the time I got to university, these were really the two possibilities uh, for me. Uh, both both in terms of wanting to do something useful. In in the world, in terms of giving back, I think in uh, as we would now say, I didn't have that vocabulary uh, then, and and frankly, as a default option in terms of the two middle class professions, I knew anything about at all, and so I, I switched for reasons that are too complicated to go into here. I switched from geography to sociology, uh, which which began to to give me uh, a a framework for understanding the world understanding myself and understanding what what where i was in in that world and what i could do there i had a before i moved to sociology in the first year uh, i had a a fairly hairy hedonistic time in my <laughs> first, first year at university, and you can read all about it within, with, within, within the book. And uh, I had a kind of anti-authoritarian, anti-establishment stance, Monty Python-like almost for its, for its own sake, really. But it, it was when I started to get, get hold of sociology as a discipline and uh, met the woman who is now my wife, from, who was born fifteen miles from me. Who uh, one of our favourite songs is uh, Cat Stevens's "Hard Headed Woman." She mm-hmm. was my hard headed woman who could make me do my best. So I I started uh, volunteering for things, um, uh, doing some work with with the, the local community, and 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 began to develop a sense of direction for my. Uh, Anti-anti-establishment uh, impetus, and uh, then self-teaching really became what I thought I could do. Sociology was hardly a subject in schools. Geography uh, wasn't really possible because I hadn't done enough of it at university, and somebody um one of the places I applied to recommended uh, primary teaching to me and um, I'd never considered it. I'd no idea if I'd be any good at it, but off I went uh, to train to be a primary school teacher. Uh, we had in those days uh, two teaching practices. one one the first one was four weeks and I got to teach what we were now called the respectable. Uh, working-class kids, those with uh, nice gardens, um, uh, p- <laughs> parents who supported their kids' homework and so on, on really the best uh, social housing estate in the town. And, and I was okay. In, in fact, my uh, supervisor there evaluated me and said, you will either be a, a truly brilliant teacher or an absolutely terrible one. And there will be nothing in between," she said. <laughs> so other people must judge which of those things uh, which of those things came true. But but I think what made the difference was uh, I, I hadn't really found what was driving me even yet until uh, I was placed in a in a second school for my long teaching practice just a stone's throw away from where they filmed the movie The Full Monty in Sheffield in a school that looks absolutely identical. Um, And when I arrived at the gates of the school uh, on the first phase to greet the first face to greet me, was the naughtiest boy in my previous school who'd now decided to live with his dad instead of with his mum across the other side of the city. I knew this was going to be a lot tougher, and so it was. This was really one of the poorest communities in the, in an already fairly poor city. Uh, it, it had what we now call a lot of multicultural diversity, particularly Afro- uh, Caribbean kids, for whom we were not prepared to teach at all. Race was nowhere in the curriculum, as as an item we should mm. uh, we should consider. Um, and uh, they, uh, it was extremely challenging, and I had to draw on every ounce of everything I had in me uh, in 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 order to respond. To the faces that were in front of me every day, and and have them feel as well as me that that they were getting something of value, and and then I think that was, that was, r- really really the moment that that clinched this business of education that I've that I've moved into.
1: Yeah, you um, you right, write uh, Andy. It, it at that point it was now a matter of uh, not so much. You know, making learning interesting or boring or succeeding or failing at the job. It was really a matter of making, you know, a difference in the lives of these children who were on the wrong side of the tracks or the wrong end of the class and, and, uh, full of this sense of inequality. And, and now this drives your life, this whole yeah. pursuit.
2: They, well, my next book is, uh, that's in press now is, uh, and today I'm I'm just editing for the publisher the last uh, chapter is on student engagement and and a subtitle of the book is is beyond relevance technology and fun so one of the ways we get achievement in our young people is by engaging them in their learning but but it's not just about you know, making learning more enjoyable or interesting or 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 fun or getting them focused or giving them more grit. Oh, but wow. it's it's really about transforming the relationship a bit between kids and on their learning, especially kids who come from backgrounds where they struggle. So that their learning co- connects with those backgrounds, helps them feel. That that they're a valued part of the world has something to contribute to the world and and feel pride in where they come from, not not feeling that their background is either negative or uh, invisible, really. So I think this is still true. Uh, the paradox is: is our schools are getting better, but our society is getting worse. That that is the bluntest way to put it. Uh, I, I am, for, for all my struggles and the struggles of people like me, uh, and it was not all misery. There's a lot of joy in the book as, as, as well as misery. Uh, for, for all those struggles, uh, I and you, Neil, are part of a, a very privileged generation in historical terms because we lived in a time when there was more social mobility than there had been for 50 years before, and more social mobility than there's been for the 50 years afterwards. We we mm. lived at a time when we actually thought government was a good thing, not a bad thing. When uh, in, investing in public housing, public libraries, uh, public education was seen as a way to, to create opportunities uh, for everyone. When, when uh, mobility depended on achievement and not on nepotism or internships or uh, ways ways through the door that privileged families could give you. In, in the last 40 years, what we've seen, and our government in Canada is dealing with right now, is is uh, a widening of the gaps, not, not only in income, but primarily in wealth. So we know that 1% of the economic distribution in society now now owns more than 50% of, of the wealth globally, uh, the, whereas the groups at the bottom have made uh, far less progress. So, if we see social mobility as a kind of ladder and, and many people see mobility as an, as an alternative to greater equality, uh, many people say, believe in in all good faith that, well, it's okay to have inequalities in society if there are fair chances for people to move up wherever they come from, based based on their accomplishments. But but when inequality gets greater, the rungs on the ladder move further apart, and there are fewer of you, fewer of you moving up the ladder together. So it just becomes harder to to make progress and once people have made progress like many of our dot-com millionaires often by their own efforts uh, what they do is they then turn uh, and we're probably part of this we we turn the meritocracy into an aristocracy and uh, we start to get our kids into after school clubs we move across other sides of town where the better schools might, might be. Uh, we, we angle for internships. We uh, encourage our kids to go on uh, travel or do volunteering work. Meanwhile, uh, the working class kids, uh, including many of the kids from, who are new Canadians, uh, coming from war-torn countries overseas, starting again from almost nothing when they when they come here. That uh, they they don't have all those things uh, behind them, and so it's not just their own efforts or not that determine whether they get ahead, but it is the efforts of the others who've already got ahead that are leaving them behind. So, mm. so I think that the thing now which we're facing in in many parts of uh, the world, in in this country, and in the US election that is going on right now is actually how can we narrow some of those gaps and, and still have some inequality, but we'll have differences between rich and poor, but not between filthy rich and dirt poor. So it, it, it's just easier for everybody to have a fair chance to progress mm. by their efforts and accomplishments.
1: Well, what a, a great note to end on, Andy. Uh, you know, this book, Moving, a memoir of education and social mobility is just so full of, of grit. And, and you, you talk about it's, it's not just the grit of sheer perseverance or tenacity in response to daily adversity. It's also the grit of defiance in the face right. of obstructive and oppressive authority. Thank you so much, Andy. I I do hope we can have another conversation um, and I look forward to the next book. Let's get it edited and and out to press. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Neil. And thanks for everything you're doing with the festival. It's a really great
0: contribution. That was Neil Wilson in conversation with Andy Hargraves. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season. It's all available online at writersfestival.org, and all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please consider making a donation to support our virtual programming, as it may be a long while before we are able to gather again in person. The next Republic of Childhood episodes of Writers Festival Radio, War at the Snow White Hotel with Tim Jones, as well as Student Activism and the Crime Crisis, featuring Vidya Shaw and Alexis Benz, appear on November 27th. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn. Original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubey. Kira Harris is the festival's program director. Neil Wilson and Taya Yateman are my fellow co founders of The Republic of Childhood, and I'm Aiden Wilson. Thank you all for listening.